Here we go. The Earth Fox Podcast. Welcome to the Earth Fox Podcast. With 404. Missing link. Yeah, he's a great man, by the way. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And visit us at vox404.com. Enjoy the show. All right, tell me what you think about this theory. Because I've been considering it. So as we all know, I've been fighting off some some sort of virus problem, cancer, cholera, coronavirus for what has felt like the last month. And when my when my oldest daughter started school for the first time last year, it felt like a constant stream of sickness. She would that she would pick up in in class and bring back to the family and then we would spread it around and it would mutate and then she would take it back to school to her classmates who would then mutate it among their families and then eventually return it to us so we had like three weeks of the entire winter last winter where we weren't all sick this year's been much better except there's been like this looming sort of on the horizon sickness that we could feel coming on and oh oh then take a bunch of our our vitamin powder em- emergency and i feel like it's th- that we've been taking so much of that but it's like it's like vitamin c a little bit of vitamin b and a little bit of zinc zinc that you mix with water and it's supposed to help boost your immune system to fight off the sickness. But what I feel like is happening is that we're not really, is that we're somehow inhibiting our immune response by drinking this powder. Because I feel like I've been almost sick, like on the verge of being full on needing bed rest, calling into work for literally the last three weeks. And over the weekend was no better, but I've really, I I wasn't going to complain about it this morning because I feel like at this point I'm coming off like a heroin addict. As you know, that's like one of the stereotypes, I guess, about being a heroin addict is you're always sick. Like people that don't know that you're a user, you say they are always like, oh, they're just, they're always sick. They're always calling off work. They never feel good. I promise that's not what's going on but there's just hey man, but, it's I mean, 2023 well it's all and it was almost like i mean i was seriously considering what you said last week like is it long covid that i have have i just been effectively fighting it off for the last three weeks and it's never it's just never gonna leave me alone yeah i don't, I don't know i mean long covid is uh well you're a well, i think long long I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Like long COVID is something that's probably gonna be a thing, like way in the future that people will look and be like, "Whoa, this can be like, you know, like the thalidomide thing." Uh, yeah, yeah, so. yeah. The the thalidomide, and then and then not to mention all of the treatments, right? That were some experimental, some less experimental. But you're a you own and operate a business have you noticed over the past several years that your employees are 
calling out sick more often? And do you believe them? Um, or is that something you deal with in your industry? Yeah, of course. You know, anyone that employs someone is obviously at some point exposed to those questions. Uh, has it been my experience? Not as much as like other businesses because all of us work remotely. So a lot of them work at home, even if they're ill. Um, and I don't usually hear about it um, because, you know, usually if they're ill, they're not getting paid. So um, ah. that's just uh, that's just the way that's just the way that the, the kind of cookie crumbles. So um, if they're ill and they want to take some time off, uh, you know, that's on them. Um, but, uh, you know, most of the time they if they're if they're not too bad, they just they just keep working and I never hear about it. What's the what's the interview process like? So uh, usually we do a two stage interview. So I have someone do the first sort of stage interview and that's just to just to verify that they are who they say they are, um, as well as kind of vet them as a person. Are they someone that's actually kind of like nice and easy to work with? And then the second one is with uh, usually me. Um, and then I just go through and vet their uh, efficacy in certain areas, sort of vet their background, what they've done before, you know, and, and, and do I think they'll, they'll be a good fit for what I need. Do you it's do very, any, very simple. any like personality tests or psychological analysis? No, I, I'm very classic capitalist. Uh, really, all I'm looking for is someone that's just exceptionally good at doing something better than I can do it. Uh, and if you can do that, I don't really give a shit if you have a criminal record or if you have like some psycho type deal. If you're just easy to work with and you can do something better than I can do it, that's fine. Yeah, and it must be a lot easier not having to worry about you know, having them steal your inventory or money out of the cash register or, or yeah. anything like that. I, I'm just wondering because I feel like with these, with, with things like political appointments that plague the United States, we've, we vote. I mean, it, I, I'm nearing the opinion that, that the whole election process is just an illusion. But when it comes to making political appointments, like I'm, I'm thinking specifically about these judges that are involved with all of the Trump indictments that are going on. I mean, some of these people yeah. are real psychopaths. Yeah. And I wonder what sort of psychoanalysis is going into the appointment of these judges, because, you know, I mean, even in simple job applications, there's that. I mean, from time to time, it, I mean, obviously it varies between companies, but there's that, th those weird questions uh, that come with the, uh, the scale of responses, like, uh, like one through five, you know, one mm. being like strongly agree and five being strongly disagree. And then two being, you know, moderately agree or somewhat agree to somewhat disagree with, you know, like a neutral or not sure or whatever in the middle of those are all meant to establish like your psychology, the way, yeah. you, the way you kind of think and the kind of employee like these, these companies, I mean, just like on the marketing end, 
They want to know who their consumers are and how their consumers are going to behave given certain stimuli. It's on the employment side. I imagine it's the same. You want to know how your employees are going to behave given certain stimuli. You know, after you oh, worked there for, yeah. for three years, are yeah. you going to become indignant and, and start, you know, slacking off and only giving 50% effort? And that, I mean, I'm not even a business owner, operator or manager in any capacity. And yeah. that kind of thing just drives me crazy. With, I mean, it's mainly like a coworker or even a superior <laughs> does things to make more work for me, like the Friday curse. It's, it's like, it's inevitable. You come in on Friday, you find somebody or, or a, a certain group of employees not racial or ethnic. <laughs> that is not what I'm getting at. But they've decided, oh, it's Friday. I'm going to slack off and create a bunch more work for the people around me. It just, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if that's, if that's unique to me. Probably not. But it drives me absolutely crazy. Yeah, for sure. It's it's something that I try to eliminate as much as possible because doing a Friday crunch just sucks uh, because you know that you're not going to get it done before everyone's off the next day on Saturday. And uh, especially if you're like a if you're if you're like a business owner, then you're sitting there thinking, well, it's got to be done. So you're working, you know, personally, I'm like, fuck, I guess I'm working tonight and tomorrow if I need to get it done. So as much as possible, it's like we try and we try. Well, I try and keep Friday basically free just to do lots of little things. Um, and then we do most of our main work Monday to Thursday. We ever had to fire anybody. Yeah, of course. How, how does that go? Tell me about the last, uh, tell me about the last time you fired somebody. OK, so. Uh, really, it was just uh, they just weren't very good at what what they were doing um and it was just it was just very simple it was like you know i've tried to help you and your ability is is not where it needs to be and so we're gonna go with somebody else and that's just uh you know it's just very it's just very straight up yeah yeah business you know yeah it's it's very business it's it's not and and, and from that way you know you can just say hey look I'll I'll be a reference, whatever, and I'll I'll help you move on to your to your next thing. Um, and it's just, yeah, look, <laughs> that, that's just, that's just it. And if you you know if you try and do the oh I'm so sorry, you know it, it it makes it it makes it so much worse. If you just outline what's going on, why they're going, I help you move on to the next thing, then then it your life's a lot easier. And it's um, it doesn't have to be this long drawn out thing. Have you ever had to? can anybody for anything egregious no nothing no and, and that's pro yeah and that's probably because we, we don't have an office so it's like the usually if you have an office that's where shit starts to go wrong or if you have a lot of people yeah. that that converse with with you know end customers or something you know um uh but you know in into office type should we say relationships that's usually what ends up having those you know horrible hr disasters yeah, yeah. so um yeah no i've not had to do anything like that cheers I, I haven't either i've only been i've been in in 
an elevated supervisory position that lent me the ability to ask my supervisor if I had the authority to fire people. Uh, to which he responded, no, you do not. <laughs> That's as close <laughs> as I've gotten. Uh, but I don't want to. I mean, I never felt like I, I've been in, in, you know, positions where I operated a crew and I had to achieve a certain outcome using the people on my crew. And I was successful at that. And I enjoyed it. I would say, I mean, aside from driving, Management is my, you know, my other employment background. But there are certain situations, certain scenarios where I, I wouldn't want to be a manager. I wouldn't want to be responsible for people. Yeah. I, I think, I'm, I mean, maybe I'm kind of like, a, I do like to be part of a team, but I also like to be in charge of that team. <laughs> If that, if that makes sense, because I, yeah, I that think, makes sense. Yeah. I think I'm kind of distrustful and, uh, a little bit, uh, of a rogue. I don't like, I don't like to be told what to do. I don't like to follow the rules. Um, especially if I don't agree with them, but I also try to do the right thing and be a team player and, accomplish the task ultimately i mean my background my my when i was learning to work as an adolescent you know junior high age i worked on the ranch yeah and my stepdad would go to work and give me a list of tasks and it was i mean i was 13 it wasn't item it, or it, you know it wasn't step by step here's how to do all this stuff it's it was accomplished this task mm -hmm. by any means necessary. And I appreciate now how that set me up to problem solve and troubleshoot, but it, it also gave me this element of, I want to do it my way. And I actually had, I've butted heads with managers in the past who would come through and go, no, 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 don't do it like that. Do it like this. Where I would go, dude, I, okay, that's fine. Like I have no problem following directions but now you've you, you delegated this task to me and now i've completed this task and you're coming back to say no don't do it that way do it this other way that i like better yeah. and now i want to strangle you because you could have told me earlier <laughs> that this is how you wanted me to do it and now i'm i'm having to redo something that i've already done which is another pet peeve of mine yeah but that's that's not what I want. That's not what I'm trying to get into. It's interesting to me that as it pertains to politics in the UK, yeah, these MPs mm -hmm. are being effectively fired through these allegations that, that are coming from their staffers. Um, what right. was, yeah, what yeah. was the name of the guy? That we discussed so, a few weeks ago. Oh, um, that had this. Well, there was there was Chris Pincher, um, and he was suspended for, I think, some sort of like sexual allegations. Um, it was the guy who was bullying. We listened to all of those videos. Oh, and... that guy was. Oh, so the guy, 
that I just I'm can't remember sure his these... name. That's Dominic Raab, I think you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, that guy. Yeah, so I, I can't remember if he's, is he still, is he suspended or still there? It was, well, yeah, that was, it was the ongoing saga. But what I found interesting is you've, you've sent me this yeah, article about. Yeah. yeah, Peter Bone. Bone, yeah. Great name. Peter Bone. So I think what's different about this one is that he has been suspended after the investigation concluded. So it's not like it's someone makes an allegation and then there's a witch hunt and then they get suspended. Well, with a name like um, Peter Bone, he's got to be guilty, right? <laughs> of course, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So, what's he uh, done, Peter Bone? So, Peter Bone apparently, um, according to, well, it's not apparently. It, you know, the investigation concluded and upheld. You know, the five allegations of bullying, including verbally belittling a, belittling a guy, physically striking him, and throwing stuff at him, and you know, uh, and making sexual remarks and stuff like that. So apparently this one guy that worked underneath this uh, MP, Peter Bone, um, and, and Peter Bone is, is, is not a nice person. Um, so this doesn't really surprise me. He's the MP for Wellingborough, which is a local town to me. Uh, my sister went to the same school that uh, his uh, son went to. And the funny thing about that is that his son absolutely hates his dad's politics and actually went and became a member of the Labour Party. Um, not a member of Parliament, but he's joined the Labour Party, which I think is just so funny considering that his dad is a very hard right conservative. Um, so he's now been um, suspended, which is just another conservative MP. I mean, there's a, just a long list of them now that have been suspended. It uh, makes me suspicious. From yeah, I mean, it, may, it would make me suspicious if he had been suspended before the investigation had concluded. But the, there's an independent investigation that's happened, okay, from these allegations, and they have upheld every single one of them. Um, and I trust the independent in, uh, investigations primarily because of their investigation into Boris Johnson's conduct and how well done and how well thought out that was. And all these investigations are independent and cross-party, so they're not usually biased. Um, and the the oh, it found that the MP for Wellingborough broke sexual misconduct rules by indecently exposing himself to the staffer during an overseas trip. So what I does mean, that just, mean? Uh, I mean, so did he, he he pull it out and wave it around, or was he just changing and the guy came into the room? Okay. So I would assume that it, that it would be deliberate. I can't, I can't imagine that anyone would reasonably expect someone to walk into someone and, and that be an accident. And then, and then that would be, you know, and that's why the investigation happened, I guess. And it's, and it's concluded. And so he's still a MP. So he's still in parliament, right? Which is the interesting thing. But the difference is he's been suspended from the Conservative Party. So he is currently an independent right now. So it's not like this investigation has ousted him from Parliament and that's some kind of detriment to, um, you know, the democratic process because people will have voted for, for Peter Bowen. And if they want to vote for him again uh, after having all these allegations put against him, that's their complete right to do so. And if people feel like he's the guy that's to represent them, then that's totally fine. 
Um, but what's interesting is, you know, the conservatives have suspended him. And obviously because they don't want, you know, uh, to be, they don't want their party brand to be tainted by someone like Peter Bowen that is a, uh, you know, the, the independent expert panel has found that he has actually done the things that he was alleged to have done. So they don't want to be um, attached to that. I don't know what that means for Peter Bone. I mean, I doubt he'll get in next time as an independent. Independents usually don't fare very well. Um, so what, what is his un under suspension? Does that mean that, that, you're just one MP short for legislation. I mean, the, the people that is he still able to represent the people that voted for him? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So he's not in the conservative party, but he's he's an independent now. So he's he's not affiliated with any party, but he's still in parliament. And how does that affect his ability to represent? Um. So. Really, it, it, it affects, I mean, to represent his local constituents, it doesn't really do much other than stuff that's very hard to uh, quantify, like his connections with other party members, um, the support of the Conservative Party itself in local campaigning. Um, so he would lose that support that would enable him to campaign more effectively in his local area. But the actual like legal or, you know, the powers that he is granted by being elected, that is completely unaffected. Um, but he's just not allowed to be affiliated with the Conservative Party because they have decided that they don't want him anymore. And now the watchdog has recommended that he be suspended from the House of Commons for six weeks as a punishment for what he's done, um, which, you know, since he's been found that he has you know, uh, broken the sexual misconduct rules. Six week suspension seems kind of like, I don't know, yeah, like, if, it, it, like if I was found to be a sexually misconduct in public, like I would serve jail time, but he gets six weeks just off work, basically. Um, but the, that has to be voted on by the Houses of Commons. So the independent thing can't just say you're on leave for six weeks. They recommend that and the House of Commons can vote yes or no, or they can amend it and say, well, maybe only four or maybe longer, maybe eight. So that, that's, that's the process on that. That's why I quite like the process, because there's a lot of transparency in there. Yeah, it sounds similar to uh, what a congressman in the U.S. would face under censure. Yeah. You're just yeah. kind of uh, in the doghouse. So to speak, yeah, it, it does yeah, yeah, seem sure. kind of, I mean, assuming the allegations are legitimate. I mean, this is, this has been going on since 2017. Like this, this, these are the things that raise red flags for me. Just in the telling of the tale. Yeah. It's been going on since 2017, six years now or, or yeah, longer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, he's uh of the same sort of undesirable political party, at, at least as it pertains to popular media. You know, the conservatives, the people that believe in freedom, yeah, yeah. the people that yeah. don't believe in. Well, they're the bad guys. 
And so we must destroy them because they're bad. Um, the, the exposing himself thing was just briefly mentioned. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't need hardcore details. But what is disturbing is that let's just, it, it, it's not necessarily, I, I don't want to question the integrity of the investigation. Oh, what was really interesting, he made the complaint in 2017. It's taken this long for something to happen about it. Yeah. That's so, oh, I see. And he was, a, and, and, and this is, this actually so, connects nicely. Uh, right to a story that I, I didn't prepare uh, to talk about, but in the 2016 American election between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, this guy, uh, Douglas Mackey, I believe okay. was his name. He, yep. he, his alias was Ricky Vaughn. And he posted memes during the 2016 election suggesting that people could vote via text message from their phones, which is of course false. So this guy, Douglas Mackey, AKA Ricky Vaughn has been now sentenced to seven months in prison because he posted these memes about voting for Hillary Clinton through text message. As a joke, it's it's being widely reported that there was this was just meant to be a joke. Right. But this sentencing just happened a few days ago, a week ago. Yeah. From something that happened in 2016. Uh, it's, it's interesting, you know, the more I read this, the more it looks worse for the Tories. I, I've got to be honest, because it looks like this guy tried to do it through the just party channels trying to keep it you know under wraps because no one wants to like throw their own party under the bus right so he tried to go through the party and he basically they said that there was a potential breach of party guidelines and it should be subject to a further hearing and then nothing happened for three years and then he was kind of forced to make a formal complaint to the parliament independent complaints and grievance scheme um and then uh, and then, and then from there, that's when the investigation sort of like actually moved. So the Tories had basically all the time in the world to make this go away. And they chose to just sit on it and trying uh, and try and just like, I don't know, like just, just shudder it and maybe hope that he would just go away. Um, so really this is, this is the Tories fault. If, if this, if this had happened, if he had put in the, the, the complaint, like, you know, this year and something happened, I can kind of go, mm, maybe he's like moving to labor and he wants to just stick a knife in. But this is ages ago. Like, this is like right, right in, right in like the sort of like Tory heyday when they were untouchable, you know, and they had all the time in the world to make this thing go away and they did nothing. I forced the guy to go to the independent panel and now they've lost an MP. So, I mean, they just played themselves. Like, I want to believe that this is some kind of, like, coordinated attack or something by some leftist guy, but, I mean... Well, you're right. He does look like a dick. Uh, 
he is a dick. He is a total. He, this guy is a total dick. Okay. I don't know why they keep voting this guy in Welling, bro. So if he gets voted out, I'll be fucking happy, bro. I don't like the fact that he's going to get out on this bullshit. I'd rather he just get out because someone else is better. Um, but, you know, the fact that this has happened doesn't shock me. Um, the fact that the Tories have completely fumbled the bag on handling this doesn't shock me as they are just habitually horrendous at dealing with internal issues compared to labor, which used to be habitually horrendous at, inter at handling internal issues. And now they are like a fucking lockbox. You know, basically nothing gets out of labor. They're like, there's no leaks. There's no, there's no bad shit going on. They, they're like full on election mode. Nothing goes wrong. It's, it's, you know, it's crazy. Um, well, it's like like the left in in this country, fiercely united. Which also, I mean, it's great to be yeah. united in in you know for a common cause. But when it came to things like the impeachment, and and even now the the pending impeachment for for Joe Biden, but when they were impeaching Donald Trump. Nancy Pelosi, the former Speaker of the House, would just bring everybody together. Two minutes. Everybody vote. I know how you're all going to vote. And OK, we we voted to impeach him. And I just found myself thinking uh, not a single. Democrat of the 220 Democrats in Congress, not a single one. Took a look at the evidence. That was very weak and very flawed and said, no, yeah. I don't I don't think like all integrity goes out the window. All personal morality goes out the window, like when it comes to yeah. being a, a Democrat or labor, like there's not a single one of you that will objectively look at it and make your own decision based on the facts and the evidence and not just based on the party affiliation. Yeah, I mean, oh, there's one guy in Labour that actually, okay, this is really interesting. So Labour does have, I just thought of this, it does have a problem with a couple of people in there that are Labour by name only. <laughs> sort of like, so Rhinos. They only, yeah, they, they only join the party because like, you know, you kind of need to join the party if you're going to get anywhere in politics. You know what I mean? Like, just yeah. like Andrew Yang joining the Republicans because it's he, just like he has prison. to be somewhere. Yeah. So there's a guy that runs, oh, I can't remember his name, but he runs Manchester, the city. And Manchester, I was there the other day. It is a fantastic place. If you were nice. dropped there and you didn't know anything about it, it is like London. I mean, it's, it's in the north. It's, I'm serious. It could be pretty big. And what they've done to that place is fantastic. It's run fantastic. And the guy is the guy that runs it, the mayor or something. Andy Burnham, I think his name is, is a labor guy. But he never goes to the party conferences. He never makes statements. And he constantly looks out only for his local area. And if labor does something he doesn't like, he'll fucking talk about it. And he just won't toe the party line at all. And there's nothing they can do about it because he's so popular and he's so good at what he does in Manchester. Um, and so that's and so quite often Keir has a problem. And Keir Starmer's the leader of the Labour Party 
he has a problem with some of these people that are doing a really good job, their labor, and they do things that contradict maybe the manifesto at the time, but there's nothing they can really do about it. So I would say that's the only thing that, that they've got there. The Tories don't really have that. Um, they have more like fringe groups in the Tories that kind of like believe more right leaning stuff or they or they're more center right or this and the other. So the Tories are more like a fractionalized group of people that kind of sit on the mid to right kind of area. Um, but they don't have anyone like Andy Burnham looks after a city and just doesn't give a shit about anything else other than his local his local thing. And he just does that really, really well. Yeah, it's interesting how the the Tories and the conservative sort of leaning politicians in the UK yeah. really resemble exactly what's going on in the US right now because it's right. the same. So so the whole Speaker of the House saga has been going on ever oh. since Matt. Yeah, Gates yeah. How's that going? Got McCarthy kicked out. He's gone. Some people have tried to vote for him again in the selection of the new speaker, uh, but it has not been going well. And oh, it, it just, I feel like if you were going to operate a country and provide the illusion to the citizens in that country that they were affecting change with their vote, I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you create a system with one party that's completely bloodthirsty and borderline lawless with their opposing party being totally gutless and cowardly? (laughs) It it (laughs) sure would create a great environment for uh, just sort of distraction. You know, throw up a smoke screen that allows you to do whatever you want behind the scenes while you're while while one side while one, you know, one political party does your bidding and the other political party just mm. stands aside and and lets you accomplish what you want to accomplish. Because in, I mean, even in the UK, you've got your united labor party that's all pulling in the same direction and then your right. fractured tory party that yeah. can't i mean guys can't even keep their trousers up oh for sure but it wasn't always like that for labor like you know when jeremy corbyn left and keir starmer came in i mean the, the party was basically in two halves you know between the really progressive lefts and the more center lefts um and it still is, you know, they're, they're towing the line a bit more today. But I believe once they get in power, that could be a problem when they get down the road because they're going to have that half of the, of the party that, you know, really wants to go as progressive left as possible. And they're going to be going up against the other half of the party that wants to just be like more moderate left. Um, so they've come, they've come a long way. I'll, I'll take my hat off to them, you know, to, to, to wrangle those progressive lefts and get them to a place where they'll put up with more moderate left policies is actually kind of impressive because I don't know if you've ever, you know, and I'm talking directly to the listeners now, I don't know if you've ever gone to an urban area and met a progressive left person. They are not easy to convince of their opinions otherwise or try to get them to compromise at all. 
Um, yeah, they're completely intolerant and closed-minded. Right, exactly. So, you know, for them to somehow get them to toe the line is kind of amazing. But as I say, like, when they get in power, and they they probably will at this point, the Tories are just fucked. Um, that could be a real that could be a real problem. I can see that being quite a, a quite a significant sticking point. Maybe not in the first term, but by surely, surely by the second term, that that could be a real problem. On its surface, I want to look at the the unity of these parties and think, oh, it's that's a really positive thing. Like, I mean, if the Democrats had control of Congress in yeah. the U.S. They would have a speaker. They would all be very supportive of their speaker and they would be getting things done. It would be to the detriment of the entire country, but they would be getting things done. Yeah. As it is now, there's like uh, between eight and a dozen Republican congressmen that seem to really represent the will of the people, at least the conservatives in the country. Right. Right. With a, another 200 that are kind of like they, you don't know their names. You never hear of right, them. Okay. My local congressman is, is the same. We, we never hear about her. We never hear what she's doing. That's terrible. She constantly gets reelected because it's just name recognition. Um, for, I mean, fortunately, like we, we never see her as like a standout in a, in a vote against somebody that we wanted like it was pretty clear that the american people wanted jim jordan to replace andrew mccarthy andrew mccarthy was definitely a representative of the establishment of big corporations right. and and yeah that was my foreign understanding interests as well. and jim jordan so a great simple way to explain who jim jordan is he was the guy that wanted, uh, oh, what would you call it, oversight on all of the money that was being uh, uh, donated is not the word that I wanted to use, but it's the word that comes <laughs> most readily yeah. to mind. The aid packages to Ukraine. Well, that seems he, reasonable. He wanted to see where it was going. How is it being utilized? As it is now, like we're sending this money over there and it's just gone. Buy money. Really? Buy buy taxpayer dollars. Like Okay, that's crazy. Fingers crossed. We hope Zelensky's, you know, keeping his you know, keeping everything on the up and up and using it for what he's supposed to use it for. I mean, I hope he is. But there's no yeah, that's... there's no oversight to what's happening with that money. And this is one of the things that Jim Jordan wanted. Right. Okay. Now he's not the guy. They went through three votes. He didn't, I don't think, I mean, he didn't get the number of votes he needed to become speaker. So he washed out the next I guy. Guess the problem, I guess the problem with that, with that legislation that he wants to put in is that would go both ways. So if the Republicans wanted to send aid or donate to, to causes they want, then that would mean that we'd have to be oversight on that. Well, I think for me, like logistically, that's putting burden on Zelensky in Ukraine. Like, hey, right. we need we need receipts. And I don't know if that's a reasonable request. Maybe well, it I think is. it could it could come from either way. Like, like you just it's not like you need receipts, but you you just sent aid in terms of monetary value. 
um, all the stuff for where it's going. You know, I'm sure they have that for like the 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 like the items that they're sending over. And in terms of the money, you can just itemize it out on the contract. You don't have to send them like a billion dollars and then tell and then just hey, can your accountant just like do you know tally it all up once you've spent it? You should probably you should probably be tallying it up before you spend it. What they're going to use it on? Um, that's pretty commonplace for like any charitable sort of sort of thing and you know the ukrainians are smart enough to do to do at least that so i don't think it's reasonable but i do i do think you know if the republicans wanted to do something similar um that would mean that they would have to have oversight on that and you know we've experienced uh we've experienced a few a few uh you know shenanigans with money flying around with the republicans too so I don't know if they'd want to subject themselves to the same treatment. That that's that's always that's always one of those things that's, that kind of sucks. Is like, you know, sometimes MPs or politicians will ask for legislation, and then other people will go, "Yeah, that sounds like a great idea," but then that would affect me too. So that that's that's uh, that's something to think about. Yeah, I think it's I think it's doable. I think you, it could be accomplished, but it's one of the things that has kind of created this resistance to further Ukraine funding. Like, I don't know why, well, I can think of a few reasons, but I, I do think that that was the reason that Jim Jordan didn't get through to be the speaker. Oh, I, c- I can imagine. Yeah. When, whenever someone comes up with an idea to create more transparency in government, they always fucking fail. Yeah. Boom. Unless they're already in government. Keep that curtain yeah. closed. Oh, of course. Like, what politician on either side of the fence wants more eyes on them? Like, it doesn't matter who you're affiliated with, nobody wants more eyes on them. So, whenever transparency gets made, it's usually because someone is just has the balls big enough when they're in government to just like executive order some transparency law in there or they just ram it through congress or they ram it through parliament and just say hey look this is what we're going to do is part of the manifesto we're just going to get it done because there's enough public pressure around it similar to the to the actual like this comes back to the peter bone thing and it says here in 2018 they had made the independent complaints and grievance grievance scheme uh, it was t- it was formed in 2018 to tackle misconduct by MPs because there was this period of time where MPs were just like there were so many allegations flying around that there wasn't actually like a thing to independently grade whether these MPs had done something wrong or not. So there was enough public you know pressure, and you know then you know someone in government can win some you know electoral party points by by putting together this thing and and now we have this but it takes someone to do that you know in parliament but you know if you're not in power like the republicans aren't in power jim jordan isn't in a position to make any legislation like that then he's just going to get completely annihilated because you know if you're not top dog if you're not trump or biden or whoever's in power right you you don't have the you don't have the pull to be able to say, this is what we're going to do, and we're all going to be on the same playing field, and, and we're just going to have to deal with this. Well, to me, it's about signaling your support for certain issues to the people that are really pulling the strings. It's one of yeah. the things that happens on the left all the time with, oh, you got the rainbow flag in your X profile. Or, uh, you know, like, 
in in the case of Jim Jordan, he said, I want oversight for all that Ukraine money. That tells everyone around this guy's a narc. He's going to he's going to tell on you when he finds out that that money that you legislated to go to Ukraine is being funneled into an NGO that is going to then contribute to your charity foundation that is going to cut you a salary of, you know, 150 K a year or yeah. what, however it works. This is. Yeah, for sure. So I wonder if Jim's banking on the fact that this policy will obviously be very unpopular with p- politicians, but very popular with conservatives because, you know, to any conservative, you would want more government oversight and transparency. Like, that's amazing. Well, and for a lot <laughs> uh, of the so, conservatives, the support for Israel is a big thing. And that's right. why I feel like we have the, the So the guy on the on the docket now is uh, Mike Johnson. OK, from uh, Louisiana. Right. And I just I scrolled through his uh, his Twitter feed the things that he's posted and, and retweeted and, and six days ago, he's saying, uh, you know, we got to support Israel a hundred percent. We got to, we got to elect a speaker and we got to get back to work so that we can support Israel. And I thought that's why he's, that's why he's a topic of, of discussion now. That's why he's a candidate Yeah, because, he, you know, it's so, it's so crazy to me that the speakers are elected on um, almost on grounds of what they believe in, in terms of like legislation or, or politics, you know, in the UK, usually they're elected on how independent they are from any sort of politics, um, other than what their beliefs are in terms of how they treat people in general, you know, are they inclusive of many views? One of the things you want in a speaker is someone that's going to be inclusive of as many people and views as possible, because then they're going to give airtime to anyone, whether they're on the far left or the far right or in the middle or whatever. And, you know, if you look at like uh, Lindsey Graham right now, you know, he was a labor guy. Super. You never hear any controversies about him. He's very boring, very extremely boring to the point of comatose. And that's the perfect speaker because where you, you have a Lindsey Graham in your parliament? Uh, no, Lindsey Hoyle. Lindsay not Hoyle. Lindsey Graham. Oh, okay. Lindsey Hoyle, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, Lin- sorry, Lindsey Graham is, Lindsey Graham is yeah, senator so from different. South Carolina, I'm, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> That's over so here. Funny. I was like, oh my God, you've got no. a Lindsey Graham. That's off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> no, I apologize. Lindsey Hoyle. Lindsey Hoyle. Yeah, but I think, honestly, the best speakers are the most uncontroversial, boring people ever, because usually that means that they're just going to sit there and make sure that the debate keeps moving forward and the politicians themselves that are elected do their job in a timely fashion. That's what you really want from a speaker. You don't want a speaker that has some political leaning or a speaker that has some agenda in the back of his mind, because that means that they're going to steer the conversation um, and debate in whatever favor they, they find and that's exactly what's happening in the House right now. That's exactly right. why we're, yeah. we're in this position, because the Speaker of the House, he creates the committees and, and he yeah. can create subcommittees from that. And then he appoints congressmen to 
the positions on these committees. And, and then these congressmen earn an extra, I think, uh, 30000 a year on their congressional salaries for being yeah, appointed. See, that's, that's just way too much power for a speaker to have. So he's, I mean, he's literally deciding, you know, what sort of holiday these Congress people can take based on if, if they get appointed to certain committees and they get an extra 30 grand or 60 grand a year for sitting on these committees, then that means, oh, hey, this guy's my buddy. He's going to put me on committees if I support him. So I'm going to support him because I know there's an extra 60 grand a year in it for me. Not because I really super agree with his beliefs and, and the legislation that he wants to get pushed through. It's he can do me a political favor. And then there's you, you add in the entire corporate aspect, like a, a good speaker should be taking the center left and center right perspectives, like, like from the middle to like 30% to either side. And, yeah, I mean, and, I, ideally, they shouldn't be taking any perspectives at all. But they should be the, taking the perspectives that exist on, on yeah. both sides, like the centermost oh, sure. 30%. You, you give yourself a 60% of the constituency and you find a compromise that works for that 60%. And, and then you've done it. But the way it sits now is everything is radicalized yeah. to the, the outermost 20%. So it's, it's all over the media, it's uh, drag queen story hour and on the other side it's a complete abortion ban and yeah 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 extreme positions are great for the media because they can they get their salacious headlines and they get all their clickbait and revenue goes through the roof yeah because this 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 really goes into like the harder stance that the Tories are taking now on on uh, what they call illegal immigration, even though there's no such thing as illegal immigration in the UK, if you claim asylum. Um, so they're taking a big stance on this now um, compared to Labour that has the complete, you know, as you quite as you'd imagine, they have a completely opposite view where they just say anyone can come in and we'll just, you know, whatever. Um, whereas the Tories are like, we got to put a stop to this. And this is what they say every year. We're going to put a stop to it. We're going to put a stop to it. And they never do. Yeah. I don't like know. Reparations. Why. Like, yeah, it's, it's like, uh, I, I don't really understand it. Like, you know, I think immigration is, is, is great. Yeah, it's good for the economy. Um, the only reason this fucking migrant crisis is costing us so much fucking money is because the Tories have basically just annihilated our court system since covid they've just massively underspent in the court system so these asylum seekers have to be put up in temporary accommodation for far longer than they should be um which is costing us like eight million pounds a day a day because we're putting oh dude because we're putting them in in hotels because we don't have enough uh you know a, a temporary accommodation it's for them, how would we have enough temporary accommodation, like houses or a council? They call them council houses here, which is socialized housing that the government keeps on their books for people that, you know, are homeless, like families and stuff, you know, people that just end up, you know, 
on the bad side of their life or something and they have a house where they don't have to be you know homeless and they get x amount and then they you know whatever they stay there or they don't or whatever the fuck so now they're gonna put this they're gonna put the onus for paying these hotel bills on the local councils right i guess that's the the idea yeah the idea is that they're I guess that's, they're not saying that explicitly, but that's kind of what it's going to be because they're basically going, well, we're just not going to do it anymore. (laughs) And the asylum seekers are going to keep coming and the councils, the local councils have a legal obligation to do it. They, if they don't do it, they can be sued, fined or taken to court from the European Court of Human Rights or even the English Court of Human Rights for not doing it. Um, and the councils themselves are quite often in horrible financial situations, as has been referenced by Birmingham City Council that just went bankrupt a month ago. I think it's a month ago, two days ago. Um, they, they filed uh, the notice of bankruptcy. Uh, so I'm not really sure how that's going to work. It seems like another sort of conservative party just random policy that just seems completely and massively either one underfunded or two underthought. This seems completely underthought. I don't know how this is going to work. If you have a bunch of people coming over and you're just going to put it on the councils, all that's going to happen is, is you're going to end up spending more money in the long run because the councils are shit at doing anything. You need to put them up somewhere anyways. And then if you get anything that goes wrong, you're going to be paying more in legal fees and any sort of settlements that you get from these asylum seekers being trapped badly or, uh, you know, them not having a house or something, plus the fact that the processing will end up on the council side, which will take them even longer. So, you know, if you were to look at it from a logical perspective, you just say, look, is the problem with, is the problem with the asylum seekers coming to the country with the hotels you're putting them in? No. Okay. The, the problem with having them in the hotels is the fact that they're not able to get out of the hotels. Do you think the asylum seekers want to be in a fucking hotel? Quite often they don't. They come here to work or do some other shit. So the a solution really is to speed up the process of them becoming fully blown immigrants so they can go in and join society or start from the beginning and stop them coming in the first place. You can't just say, well, the problem is this is the fact that we're paying money to keep them around. That's just the that's just the stupidest way to look at it. If you want to reduce that eight million a day, you got to get them out of the hotels by making them immigrants or getting rid of them. That's the, that's your two options. Not not by just going, oh, we're just gonna like not pay it anymore and just pay and just let the councils pay for it. Yeah, yeah. The more you think about it, it's the, the it's the dumbest option out of both of those. When I'm, you could just say, hey, look, let's just take some of this money that we are paying for the hotels and just blast it into the court for like a year and then crush the waiting time and then we don't have to pay this anymore i'm envisioning like as you're describing this scenario i'm envisioning a nicely set dining table and then and and then the government comes along and says we need that tablecloth we're Mm -hmm. we need that table all of that stuff needs to stay on the table but we need the tablecloth so we're taking it and then you're gonna deal with whatever's left and yeah, for sure. It's going to be it's I mean everybody's seen somebody try to pull a dining a, a tablecloth off of a dining table with all of the glasses and plates still on it. It doesn't turn out great. No, it doesn't. Cuz what do you think happens when a local council goes bankrupt? 
the government comes in and just has to bankroll it because what are you going to do? Just like have all the, all the councils, you know, things that they do, like collecting bins and looking after local utilities. You're just going to let that like die? No, the government's not going to let that die. So quite often what happens is the government or the taxpayer ends up paying for it anyways, plus the fact that quite often the councils can't get as good... Um, they can't get as good uh, like rates on loans and stuff, so it, it ends up costing more because maybe they're, you know, they're bankrupt and can't pay their debts. Uh, their debts are higher than what would have been from the government. So I don't really understand the play here. It's going to cost them more in the long run than if they just sort out the court system, which seems to be the problem here. Get everything uh, implemented, get, get these people integrated. And but that's just it. Like we have a we, we have a shortage of workers in the UK. There's a bunch of these people that only come here to do one thing, to work because they can't work in Syria. They can't work where else, they, wherever the fuck they come from, and they want to work here. Fine, but they, they can't. They physically cannot. They have to stay in the hotel. They cannot move. You because know because they're, they're not been processed yet. Yeah, they're they're asylum seekers, right? They 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 have to be processed by the court that says. You know, are you a asylum seeker? This, that, and the other. Then they give you a national insurance number, and then you know, then they give you all this this stuff, and then you can go work, right? Um, because so they just don't have enough, uh, you know, lawyers or legal people or whatever. They don't have enough judges. They don't have enough courthouses or something. Um, I mean, it just seems like a it just seems like a supply problem. You know, you've got more people that want to work here. And we have a job shortage, and then you just need to scale it up just a little bit. It's not forever. You don't have to scale it up forever, right? Like immigration is going to go down because um, you know world's changing and stuff. You know, COVID's over, and the war in like Syria and all that kind of ended, and we're getting less from Eastern Europe as Eastern Europe gets better. So, I mean, this is just the situation. They just need to pay more for the next year, and then they can just scale it down. Like they did the COVID spending. We spent a bunch of money in COVID, which we shouldn't have spent, but it's the same idea. We spent a bunch, a bunch of money to deal with the situation, and then we stopped spending the money. I, I don't understand what the, 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 the flawed logic here is. It's just like, we're, we're just going like to just not pay it. And then later on, when labor has to deal with it, or the next government has to deal with it, they're going to pay like four times as much uh, from the, you know, the, 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 the incurring fallout. Do you think this might be a way to just sort of signal to the immigrants like, hey, it's not going to be so cushy for you here anymore? Maybe uh, seek well, asylum no, someplace ha warmer? Well, that would be true <laughs> if there was some way for the immigrants to find out about that. Like, how the fuck do they know about this? Do they read the news? Probably not. Well, some I of mean, them can't even read English. I, I know that in the States... Uh, or I should say, the you know South America. They definitely got word that Biden was going to let a bunch of them come in because they started forming caravans yeah. almost immediately. Right. And this is, I mean, this is one of the things like they've been talking about it, b before this whole speaker fiasco. They were talking about holding these government officials accountable for not doing their jobs, like Alejandro Mayorkas, the. Uh, DHS sec, uh, secretary, Homeland right. Security guy responsible for immigration policies. His head was on the chopping block. 
But now there's no speaker and the house is in disarray and they're the ones responsible for impeachment proceedings and they can do nothing. So yeah. this kind of reinforces my argument that maybe the, uh, the puppet masters are orchestrating this lame duck Congress so that really nothing can be accomplished. Yeah. As, uh, and then, yeah, that, that's kind of a good thing and a bad thing. It kind of reminds me, I mean, it, it kind of plays into the, the new government that might be forming in Poland. You know, Poland just went through a really interesting uh, election where the ruling party, the Law and Justice Party, also known as uh, PIS, which I thought was funny, the Piss Party, yeah. uh, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Um, yeah, we're the party of piss. That's funny. Uh, and and it, it turns out that the, the other people have been able to make a, a coalition big enough that's, uh, that's actually like kind of a, kind of a majority to, to make a government. So I, I'm actually a huge fan of coalitions of any kind because coalitions have lots of people from uh, different opinions. And that means that you can cover more people in your population in terms of views which is always a good thing, as well as the governments move a little slower. And that's always good because yeah. that means that there's less, there's less like, you know, for business, it's always good because you know what you're going to get and laws change slowly. So you can kind of prep for the future a bit more. And it's good for, it's good for the person as well. Um, you know, because in general, that means that taxes move slowly and things move slowly. And, and, you know, it's a little bit easier to kind of like know what is legal and what isn't legal and stuff like that. And whenever something does, does get done, it's a coalition which has like four or five different parties in it that have all different, you know, so you, it's going to be whatever legislation comes through is going to be something that's kind of representative of like, you know, actually half the country. Um, uh, the only th problem with it, though, is like if an emergency happens... Um, that's when it gets quite difficult because you've got about like four or five different parties that all has a different idea of how they want to solve something. Uh, and then because it moves slowly, you know, the reaction to an emergency or some situation, you know, for example, like let's say a hundred thousand immigrants turn up on the doorstep of Poland, they have to do something about it. The coalition government goes, okay, we have to do something about it. They have to assemble all five of the parties and then they decide on something whereas you know if it was just one party they would all go right this is what we're going to do and, and just do it so um but i think it's a really good thing for poland um because they're starting to become and i i don't mean this you know if anyone's polish listening to this but you know you know you know the country's not very good or it wasn't very good um i, I don't want to say shithole but you know um a lot of people left Poland to go basically anywhere else. Well, um, I, I and... fairly often listen to uh, Luke Radowski. Oh, yeah. Poland's pride and joy. And he doesn't have very many positive things to say about it. So <laughs> I think you're OK. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, um, you know, it's a Eastern European country. But what's interesting is they're starting to do better economically wise. They're starting to do better. They're. um. Policies on family have been historically really good. Um, their um, like overall stance towards business has been better. Um, and I think they want to keep a lot of this stuff with the uh, new coalition. The only thing they're bringing back, I think, is like the abortion thing, which is, you know, whatever. Um, What's the really abortion affect? thing? 
that well before it was banned and now they and now they now it's not banned. Oh, so yeah, it, it's 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 not like it's going to be like a radically diff, you know radically change the country forever. Um, it'll just mean that a few teenagers don't get pregnant anymore. Um, <laughs> so because it's Eastern European uh, Europe we're talking about here, um, people genuinely have to stay together and have families. So, but uh, it's it's really good, I, honestly. I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh, bullish on Poland right now. They could be, they, it, it could turn into something really, really interesting. And I think this coalition, you know, even though it is a little left leaning, it's not all the way left. That's the thing, right? Which is a good thing because it's a coalition. So it's, it's mostly going to be there's a, there's a, there's a far left party in there, which is like a very minority of it. Um, but for the most part, it's going to be a pretty moderate coalition that most people like. They'll do basically nothing. And that means that... That's the best kind of government. That's the best kind of government. And since they're coming up a little bit economically-wise, it, 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 it could be quite interesting. They're right next to Germany, so they've got an amazing trading partner. They're right next to all those of the Eastern European countries. It's cheaper to manufacture there. They could be a serious you know, European hub for stuff. Um, so... I was just blown away by that result because, you know, in typical sort of Eastern European style, usually the more populist, you know, iron fist type parties stay in because that's all they've known for, you know, 50 odd years or something since the Soviet Union and all this thing, you know, yada, yada, yada. So it's been it's been really interesting to see their change um, and they have elected a government that you would probably see in the Western world, you know, um, which is a little bit more mature um, and likes Europe a lot more. I don't want to say like, you know, because Europe is good and bad in both ways. But, you know, economically wise, you want to be you want to be friends with Europe because they're a trading union. So if you're going to make it easier to do trade with your European partners, then everyone usually does better in terms of like living standards and, and work wise and everything. And, and people want to leave Poland less. And if they're staying, that means that they're spending money in the country. They're growing with the country. They're employing people. They're being employed. They're innovating within the country and not leaving. That's the thing about these countries. If you can get your immigrants to stop leaving, then that's like a huge plus for, for the country. Because all your super, because quite often like immigrants, not like asylum seekers, but immigrants are usually relatively educated. Um, and so if, if all your relatively educated people are leaving, like a brain drain problem, then all that's left are the not relatively educated people. So if you can keep those people in your country, I mean, economically, it's, it's huge. So I'm very, I'm very uh, bullish on, on Poland. I am looking at it closely. And well, and like um, American interventionism, should stop right at regime change right i mean right right before it just this side right. of regime change because <coughs> we started exporting democracy you know we and and it 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 all sounded it was sold to the american public so well like we're going to we're going to help these impoverished countries improve the quality of life for their citizens and then their citizens will stay there and they won't try to immigrate to the United States. Well, then intelligence got involved and said, hey, uh, we can affect culture a, a lot more effectively 
Yeah. If we just get rid of this asshole that is putting his country's best interests ahead of America's best interests. Yeah. So then we took this sales pitch of we're going to improve the livelihoods of these other countries because we're just such great people turned into uh, we're going to overthrow the governments. <laughs> we're going to overthrow the yeah. legally elected governments of these countries to install a dictator or, you know, president, whatever prime minister that will sort of sneakily implement policies that are going to be more pro America than pro say Venezuela still under the guise of no, we're helping them. We're bringing democracy it's, Oh, this guy is, uh, you know, he committed war crimes and he's killing his own people and we got to get in there. And it has perpetuated violence and, and more refugees in, into more countries. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it does almost the exact opposite of what you want it to do. And, it, and if you apply this logic to any country that is economically done extremely well without any American intervention whatsoever, and there's an amazing example of this, and that's China, okay? China has had zero, you know, political American intervention, really. Um, and you can guarantee that shit, because if anything, it's the other way. Dude, they haven't um, tried to conquer anybody. I mean, they're trying to right. conquer, they're trying to conquer everyone, but they're not leaving the, con their military isn't leaving. Right. And as well as, you know, America's military aren't messing with China, right? They're not, they're not. There's never been any bullets fired. There's never been nothing happening. And China has gone from, you know, where the majority of the population was rice farmers to now they're making iPhones. And, you know, they've got some problems right now. But, yeah. you know, there's, there's no question about the journey that they have gone on with no intervention at all. The only thing that changed was that both countries made it easier to trade with each other. And, and that was the big difference. It was like, well... If we make it easier to trade goods, quite often what happens is both countries um, benefit immensely, immensely. And there's no question about it that Americans, uh, just general Americans, have benefited greatly from the rise of China in terms of like the things that they do on a day-to-day -day basis. Things are cheaper. Uh, things are more disposable. Um, you know, the, the, the deflation in just general goods from China being around is just outrageously crazy. Uh, and now there's problems, you know, whenever someone gets, whenever a country like that gets big and, you know, political and this, that, and the other. But if you, like, apply that same logic to any other country, if you just make it easy to trade with Brazil or Argentina or something like that, then quite often what happens is both countries, you know, benefit. And, and the culture of both those companies rub off a little bit, as, as, as you'd imagine. Like, you know, like in Beijing, you know, there's a huge demand for American films. And that kind of rubs off both ways, right? And so you have this export of American culture into China where, you know, they like, you know, American stuff and, you know, that kind of thing. And then obviously it goes the other way where, you know, Chinese demand for certain features in films. And then that translates into like, you know, a lot to put like transgender people in films and you're not allowed to do certain, certain things because no Taiwanese Chinese flags. Are... Yeah, exactly. Right. So it goes both ways. But you can imagine what would happen if 
if let's say you want to destabilize North Korea, right? And instead of doing it militarily, all you do is you just make it really easy to trade with them. You just sell them goods. You sell them American things. You sell them American entertainment. And in return, you know, you buy stuff from North Korea. It might be coal, it might be weapons, it might be food, it could be anything. But you would imagine that those people would like use those goods and they would go, oh, this is America or this is like the Big Bang Theory. And I know about this and I now I go out for coffee and now I do this. So you can imagine how that has a greater effect than going in with a fucking gun and just blasting the shit out of the fucking government and then saying to the people, hey, guys, um, we're America and we're here to uh, bring you freedom. And and and, you know, we've done this because we've come over here and we've just blown a big hole in your fucking government. You're welcome. Uh, so I don't know how, I don't know how they've thought that that, that works because what ends up happening is the country becomes more gentrified and more civilized and then they end up getting rid of that shitty government anyways, uh, because you know, it, it just doesn't represent them anymore. You know, similar to Poland, Poland has traded with Europe for the longest time and they've become more gentrified, they've become more modern and now they've gotten rid of their populist shitty party that was in there that wasn't representing them. Uh, that, I mean, isn't that the most beautiful thing in the world? Compared to like, you know, let's just beat the shit out of Cuba. What's happened to Cuba? Nothing. How much do you think the situation in, in Russia has contributed to this sort of shift in, in Polish politics? You know, it would be, it's interesting because both parties are not particularly fond of Russia. Um... I mean, a lot of Polish people are not fond of Russia um, because of, you know, the Soviet thing. Uh, right, a lot right. of Polish people were put in gulags. So I, I am not sure to what effect that it had, although I will say that perhaps they are drawing comparisons between the strong, you know, sort of more populist right party and they are drawing comparisons to someone like Putin that is a similar authoritative more fascistic right-leaning guy maybe they're drawing that that um that inference as far as I'm aware the other party did not say anything about that um so that wasn't part of their campaigning against that party um well so politically yeah. The polls have shifted. No pun intended. Okay, pun intended. <laughs> that's, that's good. And, and the left now, sort of globally, it would seem, is more pro-military, pro-war. And that, and that may just be because, I mean, we really have nothing to compare it to. It, it, I really would like to have witnessed Donald Trump's response to these all of the events that we've seen over the last three years. I mean, yeah, I think there is a little bit of truth to the argument that Donald Trump is to blame for some of the economic, you know, themes that we've seen the, the price of fuel. And, and I mean, a lot of people would disagree with me because Joe Biden got into office and canceled a bunch of oil leases and, and, did a bunch of executive orders and, and you can literally see yeah. 
the like the days that those happened and how stock prices tanked because of the things that he was doing. But I would like to see or be able to see what it would have been like with Donald Trump. And I, I do the same thing with Hillary Clinton when it comes to things like the pandemic. Like how would how would Hillary Clinton have responded to this sort of thing to, you know, whatever the pandemic, for example. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The, the I, I, left, I, would, I would love to know. The left is the, I mean, the party in power across, I mean, it would seem across the Western world. So if, and, and, and by contrast, the conservatives, the right are kind of taking this, I, I mean, but I don't know if it's because they just happen to be the opposing party. So they're going to take the opposing view because that's just sort of a natural human condition or if it's because they really the, the constituents that they represent really have the opinion that we need to be anti-war anti-intervention anti-interventionist a little bit more isolationist and so it just makes me wonder when we see poland elect a more liberal party if it's because they feel like they may need to take an aggressive stance when it comes to dealing with Russia. Because we I, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, the, the difference with Poland is, is that they've not elected it like a single party. You know, it's a coalition of, of many parties and many different people. So make no mistake, the party that's currently in power still garnered about 30 odd percent of the vote, which was more than any other party uh, singularly. But of course, the majority of the vote went to the other parties. So um, it's, it's more difficult. It's more difficult to find out or quantify an answer to that question, really, in Poland, because it's not like, oh, they voted for the party that doesn't like Russia. Um, because. Well, I would describe it more parties, yeah. like the, the position that I'm coming from is more. Right. They voted for a party that would take more of a harder would take a harder stance against Russia mm. than they mm -hmm. would a, a party that would would rather just not be involved say which is kind of the behavior of the more conservative governments yeah at least the I ones mean, that aren't really being attacked yeah i mean like you know cuz our, our conservative government it hates russia you know they are, are pro probably they hate russia more than the Americans do by a long way. You know, Boris Johnson, he was the first guy there in Ukraine. Uh, so it's really weird. It, it, it's, it's, it's strange. You know, our conservative government is, uh, they, they, they love a war. Um, actually, a lot of our parties like a war. You know, Labour had the Iraq war. Uh, they, they love that one. And um, the conservatives, they, 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 they love it. Um, and they aren't really that conservative. If we're really talking about like the definition of conservative, you know, conserve, they're not that. <laughs> right. I don't well, know. I, I, yeah. yeah. I don't know what that, I don't know what that is for them. I'm going to write a book um, called what is a conservative? Yeah. Make and it should be like one page, Yeah, you know, just, just the front and back cover and then one page. And it just says to conserve, AKA do as little as fucking possible. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, the conservatives try their best to, um, I don't know, uh, do, do the most 
shit as possible. It seems like right now they've, they've had some good ideas in the past, but I mean, right now they, they, they just can't make any good decisions. It seems like every decision they make is a bad one or the worst one that they could have made in the, in the situation. And I, I don't know what their game plan is. Uh, the only thing I can think of is that they're just so stupid and so like, you know, like they have their blinders on. They're so tunnel visioned that they just can't see the right decision in front of them. Or they want to fuck the government up so badly that when labor gets in, they've got like an absolute nightmare on their hands or something. But oh, yeah, to, I mean, to some degree, I, I can't even see that because, you know, Rishi's, they don't want to lose that many seats. Right. You know, because if they wanted to fuck it up. Uh, you know, they'll just get completely annihilated at the next election. And that, and that never helps, because if Labour gets some crazy supermajority, I mean, they're, they're, they're fucked. The, the Conservatives will only have like 100 seats, and I mean, that's just terrible. Um, so they, they have to at least do some, something good, because otherwise people will just won't vote for them, and, and that's just never, never a good thing. So well, I, don't, I, I, don't really, I don't really get it. My... Unfortunately, my belief in elections has been severely damaged since 2020 and even 2022, like the most, probably the best evidence that Americans have in, in support of the, their, uh, the, the claims that the elections are fraudulent is what happened in Arizona in, in 2022 in the governor's, the governor's election. There was so much obfuscation. And so many delay tactics employed to stop signature verification, because this, this is just real quick. Mail-in voting, universal mail-in voting. All the Democrats love it. They, they want to have it everywhere in every state. Everybody just votes from home. So what happens when you get your, and, and I live in a universal mail-in ballot state, and I've got Great statistics, but we're, we're drawing to a close here. So to the point, you fill out your ballot, you put it in the, in the privacy envelope, then you sign the outside. And this signature is on file at the Department of Motor Vehicles because you sign for your driver's license and then they actually print it there on the license. Well, those signature records go to the Department of State. And the Secretary of State is responsible for conducting the elections. Well, in Arizona, the Secretary of State for the 2022 governor's election happened to be running for governor and did not recuse herself. But one of the main or, or the biggest piece of evidence of fraud in that election is the signature verification. But none of this has been addressed. The judges yeah. have, have dragged their feet and denied and dismissed and never let a meaningful signature verification happen. And this happened in multiple states in 2020 as well. So when it comes to things like, I know we said we weren't going to talk about Hamas and, and Israel, but people keep saying in these, mm -hmm. these anti-Palestine arguments, they keep saying, the Gazans elected Hamas with 40, they, they, Hamas took power in Gaza with 44% of the vote. So my, my first response is, oh, okay, well then I guess they kind of deserve what they're getting. 
But then you look at the larger states behind the scenes who are pulling the strings and you think, well, what nations benefit the most from having a, a, a terroristic government in charge in Gaza? Well, states like Iran and Iraq and Egypt and, and these other sort of adversarial Arab nations that want to see Israel not exist anymore. Yeah. And I think it's well, like, if you're a Palestinian, okay, just put, your in, put, put yourself in their shoes. Um, and you have a choice between an Israeli government, uh, you know, like a Jewish government and a Muslim government. As a Muslim, yeah. are you going to vote for the Jewish government or the Muslim government? So yeah, it's yeah. not like they were really given a choice. Like, it, they weren't given a choice between, like, Hamas and the nice and friendly, moderate right Muslim government, and then the Israeli one. They were given, they, they were given a choice which, you know, their fucking Quran probably for, prevents them from, from making. So, right. yeah. You can't vote against a Muslim candidate. It's like, it's like, it's a sin. you know, it, you lose it, 10 it, virgins if you do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It does sound like that, though. It's like, you know, if you, it was, it'd be like if you lived in, um, if you lived anywhere and your choice was on the docket, you know, Christian guy, uh, your, your two choices for the whole government is extremely conservative Christian guy or extremely conservative, uh, you know, Muslim guy. The fucking Muslim guy is never going to win. It's going to be the extremely conservative Christian guy, hands down. It's, it, that would just be the way it goes, because they're just not going to do it. Like, people aren't, people aren't going to do it. So, Well, and they want to you know, vote. Whole, yeah. I mean, to your point, they, they want to vote for the people that think like they do. And Yeah, of course. At, but, of course. but at what point, it, it's like I think about this all the time with the state of America. At what mm-hmm. point do the, the foreign nations being impacted by the policies of this government, at, at, at what point does that responsibility land on the citizens that elected that government? Like, I, I want to believe yeah. that America is the best country ever and take pride in the things that my country has done. But the more I find out about the shit that my country has done, the more sort of embarrassed I am about my country and not proud at all and sort of feeling like, man, are, are, are we about to get what we deserve with, with all of this, this stuff that's going on in the Middle East now and, and Iran's involvement. And it was like, like you talk about the MPs and, and politicians in the UK. Right. And how they have their, like their party affiliations kind of dictate their responses in, in legislation. Yeah. Well, here in the United States, it's whoever is contributing the most to the campaign coffers, like Lindsey Graham. When the Ukraine-Russia war kicked off, Lindsey Graham came out and said, we need to remove Putin and we need to kill him and we need regime change and we need to go to war with Russia. Like right out the gate. God, what a nutcase. Now this situation with Israel and Hamas and Lindsey Graham comes out and says, we need to bomb Iran. 
so you dig God, in. These these cra- these people are these people are crazy, man. Like you know, but I well, his number two donor, the- Lindsey Graham's number two donor, is Lockheed Martin, defense contractor. Oh fuck! Well, of course. So who's making the decisions, Lindsey Graham yeah. and his constituents, or Lockheed Martin? Well, it's pretty obvious to see. Yeah, like one of the only like major arms manufacturers in the world. That's pretty cut and dry. I mean, uh, the the people that vote these people in uh, are accountable, one hundred percent. You know, there is there's some kind of you know there's a four way, not a four way, but a four year leeway that you get, right? You know, you vote someone in and you you give them a contract for four years to say, I voted you in based on what I thought you, you could do. Did you do a good job? If no, don't vote them in. If yes, okay, vote them in again. But, you know, if someone goes, you know, if, if someone just consistently, you know, is just shit and the party is just shit and you keep voting for them and then you go, well, you know, I hate politics or yeah, uh, I'm just not paying attention. Know, I'm, I'm not paying attention or, you know, this is nothing to do with me. That is just some bullshit right there. Okay. It's like the Brexit thing in the UK where people just like voted for Brexit and Brexit happened. And some, you know, that, that is a complete fucking pile of shit now that's caused us a bunch of pain <laughs> and people just washed their hands of it. Like, like it wasn't anything to do with them. I was like, what? It was the biggest turnout we've ever had in any uh, uh, referendum and people voted for it and then just go, oh, I didn't know what it meant. Yeah. Oh, that is not an excuse, oops. bro. It's just like they should have done what uh, the no campaigners did in Australia with their referendum. Their campaign on the no side was if you don't know, vote no. That is a fucking amazing idea rather than is a fucking amazing idea. That is an amazing idea because like most people didn't understand what Brexit meant. Because it is, an, it is a very, very complicated situation. It is, it is a, more than a trading agreement. It, it's, an entire, it's an entire thing. It, it controls movement of people. It controls you know, food standards. It controls all this shit. And you're expecting some Joe Bloggs down the fucking street to make an informed decision based on some idiot in, parla- in Parliament saying, if we get rid of the EU, our immigration's going to go down. And it's just outrageous. And then for people to just go, well, oh, well, you know, this was caused by something else. Like they understood what Brexit was in the beginning. So I 100% believe. Well, yeah, I'm looking here. I'm looking here that like the most, one of the most popular campaign slogans for, for the Brexit legislation was simply get Brexit done. Yeah. And take it, back it, control and, and right. completely control of what? Yeah. <laughs> control of our borders. Okay. We still don't have that control of our laws. We already had that control of our food standards. We still have to apply to the EU rules because they're our largest trading partner. It's the most outrageous piece of shit I've ever, I've ever seen. It will go down in the history as one of the worst political fuck ups ever. And now, oh, it's like, it's like uranium. It's, it's like, it's like fucking Chernobyl. No one's going to touch the toxic waste that is Brexit. No one wants to talk about it. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. 
Nobody is trying to undo the shit that has happened. And they're constantly going back to the EU with their fucking begging cap out going, oh, can we have a little bit more of this? And can you change this and change that? And the EU's like, nah, why? Yeah. We have 27 fucking members. Well, our, our GDP is the biggest on earth, bigger than America, bigger than China. They're the biggest fucking trading group on earth, okay? So why the fuck do they have to kowtow to us? You know, when we're at the bottom of the G7 and our fucking growth is horrendous, okay? So I, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. And, and no party will talk about it. No party will talk about joining this. Even the single market would be a good start, okay? Because that would immediately basically cut the costs of like food and trade like by 5% overnight. The pound would go up. It'd be fucking party time. Uh, but no, they won't even they won't even talk about that because anytime you talk about that, they go, oh, well, you know, if we do that, then we don't get to vote on the laws that the EU put out. OK, well, fine. That would only matter if UK ever voted down any legislation that the EU proposed ever in the history of the EU, which they never did. They always voted for it. They always agreed on it. I, I could talk all day. It's so irritating. What a mess. Yeah, it's I mean, it sounds to me like a clear example of politicians going, oh, whoops, this really wasn't a good idea. Let's no. uh, not let's not talk about it ever again. Yeah, it's it's so bad. Like you, you had that slogan on the bus, the Brexit bus, they called it, which said there'd be another 235 million pounds a week that we could give to the NHS. And that was calculated from a number of money that we must pay the EU for, you know, uh, 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 membership, which includes like to cover like uh, grants and stuff to give to, you know, poorer nations in the EU, which um, if you look at it on paper, it'd be like, wow, we're paying like 12 billion a year to the EU. And we could just take that money and put it straight into the, into the NHS. And that would be true. If it wasn't that we received more money from the EU directly than we paid them. So actually by leaving, it actually cost us more because we didn't get the money from the EU anymore. Uh, we weren't paying any money. Sure. But like if you're so, receiving 20 billion and you're only paying 12, you're actually receiving 8 billion. And now we don't have that 8 billion. And we don't have any money for the NHS. Uh, so they lied. They just straight lied. Who did it benefit? Who's reaping the benefits of Brexit? Okay, so the ERG uh, benefits greatly because this allows them much more control over uh, taxation laws um, uh, uh, and uh, laws around, you know, certain food standards and, 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 and industry, um, which they quite often have their, you know, roots set in where they can push laws and, and regulations and stuff in certain areas to benefit, you know, donors uh, or to benefit their own companies, actually, as well as, you know, there were some EU laws coming up around like taxation. Um, if your company was based outside the EU, um, you the, could avoid taxation. The ERG so is the efficiency. The ERG... In <laughs> the ERG is the European Research Group, which is a group of uh, Eurosceptics, um, okay. which is a large proportion of the far right. Uh, I wouldn't say far right, but, you know, the Eurosceptics of, of, of uh, you know, that's the, the Liz Trusses and the Jacob Rees-Moggs and the Dominic Raabs 
and that kind of thing. That, that those those people, the people that really made a fucking mess of the last few years, because they basically campaign on one idea, and that's is you know gain as much control as possible. The only thing is about it, which is the interesting thing, is that um, they have not repealed or changed any legislation from the EU ever. And they actually tried and then determined that it was so hard and so expensive to translate or repeal some of these laws that they just gave up. I mean, it, you can't make this shit up. You really can't make you really can't. You can't make it up. It's just fucking it, mental. Yeah. It, it, it sounds like a classic case of politicians filling their pockets at the expense of their constituent constituency yeah. and uh -huh. to the benefit of their, their donors and the other people in the club. This is one thing that, that keeps getting brought up is <clears throat> these, all these people, these cowardly judges that, that won't hand out, you know, justice evenly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the same thing with the, the politicians, they, they want to go to fundraiser dinners. They want to be part of the in group in Washington, DC and the in group in Washington, DC is dominated by the radical left. And I don't know where that radical left comes from. I have some theories, but it'll, it'll have to wait for, for another show. Yeah. It's just, I think what we, what we best illustrated today is that the problems, the political problems are eerily identical across the Western world. Yeah, it, well, yeah. I mean, especially, yeah, between us in the UK and America, we're very linked culturally as well. So, you know, you see a lot of the problems replicated. It, it, makes, replicated, me, it makes me feel like there are external forces causing these similar issues with with the the immigration and the economy and you know the the war efforts yeah for sure i mean the fact that the uk and the us politically work together so closely uh, means that anything that they do in terms of war or trade or anything like that usually gets reflected in the problems that we see you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. So that does not surprise me at all. It, you know, if there's, if there's external people that they're talking with and coordinating certain political moves, um, then, or if it's just them talking between each other with foreign secretaries, then, you know, that's why we're seeing some of the same problems happen in both of our countries, uh, because we're doing exactly the same things. Uh, and I think what's going to be really interesting, you know, moving into the future is, is seeing how that changes with our election coming up, as well as your election that's coming up. Um, I believe, is, is your election next year as well as ours? Yeah, a, a year and a month. Well, not right, even. So, yeah. this is I, going into next year, I think, you know, for our listeners, which will be really cool to see is, is both of basically our, our election sort of campaigns are going to be happening basically at the same time. And so, really, we'll start to see, you know, how how invested are these people in each other in terms of the UK and the US together? And how does that impact their relationship as well as their relationship with whatever external factors they might be conversing with? And how does that affect how the problems 
and benefits, you know, uh, change within the country itself. It's going to make for some very interesting content. Moving, I think so as well. Moving forward. It's, uh, yeah. it's pretty exciting. Visit Vox404.com and, and subscribe to this podcast. It's uh, on every podcast platform you could imagine. I mean, excepting maybe one that has recently been created, of which I'm, I'm not aware. Follow on <laughs> uh, X or Twitter at EarthVox and uh, send an email to TheRealEarthVox at ProtonMail.com. 404. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Um, we love talking to you guys as well. So if you do want to reach out to us on, on X, that's really great. That's probably the best place uh, for us to converse on current events and uh, just the current show. I like the, the previous show we just, we just covered as well, which, which was really great, especially around if you're into technology. We talk a lot about um, capture and propaganda platforms as well as we touch on the Israel and uh, Gaza war as well. So yeah, I'll see you next week. We'll talk to you soon.